Hello, and welcome to the Eurasian Enigma, the podcast from the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. I'm Alexandra Vakru, the executive director of the Davis Center, which cultivates and shares innovative scholarship from professors, students, and visiting speakers. Eurasian Enigma is going to bring you the best of this, whether you're in your car, on the metro, or riding through the lonely steps. We'll be in conversation with the voices of those working at or passing through the Davis Center, and we'll cover ideas in political, social, cultural history, as well as recent developments. Please join us and enjoy. This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis Center. The Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. We're here with Rawi Abdullah, and we're going to talk about Russia-Turkish relations, which is a subject that I understand you were researching in Istanbul when the Turks shot down a Russian plane. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit what you were doing there and how that impacted your stay in Istanbul. Well, I did have this uh, rather good idea at the time, since Turkish-Russian relations were going along quite well. The plans to build a new gas pipeline were proceeding quite swimmingly. The negotiations for the Russians to participate in the building of a nuclear power plant for an energy-hungry Turkey were also going very well. And there was every reason to believe that uh, the rapprochement between Turkey and Russia was going to continue for the foreseeable future. So I had the, I thought, clever idea to go and try to understand both from Russia's point of view and Turkey's point of view exactly what the elements of this partnership would be. While I was there, I'd like to say that I don't think my presence had anything to do with the outcome uh, at hand. But while I was there doing these interviews and learning a lot about this relationship, in fact, that morning, the news came out that the Turkish military had shot down a Russian jet. And that event certainly has put the Turkish-Russian relationship onto a very different trajectory from the one that I had imagined when I first went off. So there's a lot to say about why they might have shot down the Russian jet and the nature of those politics. But in terms of the economic relationship, it seems very much like we're headed in a different direction. So let me let me back up a little bit. You're talking about a, a gas pipeline, and yet we hear so much about the drop in oil prices putting a hold on a lot of infrastructure projects related to oil. Could you tell us a little bit about what the connection is between oil prices and gas prices and why there would be increased investment in gas pipelines when the oil price seems to be low? Well, I will try not to bore you because I spend a lot of time thinking about this, but the bumper sticker versions of these stories are that Gazprom, which is the largest Russian company and the most important contributor to the Russian federal budget through the dividends that Gazprom pays to the Russian state as its dominant shareholder and the taxes that Gazprom pays to the Russian federal budget. Gazprom is uh, really essential for the survival of the Russian economy, and Gazprom makes all of its money in Europe. And broadly speaking, Gazprom sells about one-third of its gas volumes in overall amount to Europe, and that one-third of its volumes, billions of cubic meters of gas, provides for Gazprom about two-thirds of its revenues. And so if Gazprom doesn't sell gas in Europe, Gazprom doesn't make money. If Gazprom doesn't make money, then the Russian state is in big trouble. So the priority for Gazprom notwithstanding some recent events to try to build pipelines to China, which is an interesting story and not unrelated, is to make sure that they can continue to supply their European partners, even in a moment when relations with Ukraine are 
exceedingly difficult and one of the main pipelines historically that delivers Russian gas to its European customers goes through Ukraine. So one solution over the past 10 or so years to Russian-Ukrainian difficulties, even before things became violent in Ukraine, was to build new pipes that went around Ukraine. The first of these was the Nord Stream pipeline, which connected Russia and Germany directly. And then there had been plans to build another pipe to the south called South Stream that would have gone through the Black Sea and delivered gas primarily to Italy through a few transit countries and then eventually to the rest of Europe. That pipeline was canceled, again, for a variety of interesting reasons. And the plan was replaced with a new notion to build a pipe to Turkey and that some of the gas that was delivered to Turkey would eventually make its way to Europe. But for Gazprom, the need to continue to have infrastructure that delivers gas to its most important market is still one of the biggest priorities for that firm. And so how has this conflict with Turkey affected their plans to build a pipeline to Turkey to reach Europe? It's a great question, and we don't know the answer yet. It is still a pipeline that is very much in the national interest of Turkey and in the commercial interests of Botosh, which is the main Turkish energy company. It's in the national interest of Russia and in the commercial interests of Gazprom. And so it may well be that we do get this pipeline eventually. Certainly progress toward it has been delayed by this crisis, but I honestly have a hard time imagining that they will abandon it altogether. For the foreseeable future, it looks to be on hold. How much does Russia need that pipeline at this point, given that relationships with Europe are not so good, that the prospect of selling gas to China is a long-term one? And what is Russia doing now in order to deal with the economic crisis as far as Gazprom's sales and the need for revenue is concerned? Well, I think it's a, a medium-term project, really. Uh, the European market is not as profitable as it once was. And partly this is a story of declining European demand. Europe is mired in what is likely to be a decade-long macroeconomic crisis, and GDP growth, output growth, is highly correlated with energy consumption. So Europe just does not need as much gas as it did when it was growing more briskly before the crisis. Eventually, one imagines that European demand will recover. And when that comes to pass, which surely it must at some point, Gazprom will need to have the infrastructure in place to deliver gas to a once again growing European market, at least one that continues to buy lots of gas. And having a pipeline in place that could deliver volumes to serve that market when the recovery comes is still an essential part of the medium-term strategy of the company. And that assumes that they stop sending gas through Ukraine because Ukraine is too fraught? Well, in the scenario that both Turkish Stream and Nord Stream exist, and there is a connection between Turkey and the European customers through some new pipe that presumably the Europeans would have to build, then yes, in that scenario, Gazprom would be able to serve European customers without sending a single molecule of gas through the Ukrainian pipeline. Which is what they want. Which is definitely what they want. Now, there are political reasons to imagine that they might want that, given the difficulties of the relationship. But there are also, in fact, very sensible commercial reasons for Gazprom to want that. If one imagines that any business that relies very heavily on one other entity, one other firm for uh, its most important input, which is the transit of its product to customers, being overly reliant on just one firm for that 
activity and then having contractual difficulties as well as political difficulties with that one supplier of transit would lead almost any firm in the world to try to think about alternate ways of delivering product to its customer. But wouldn't, wouldn't that very logic that you don't want to be dependent on a monopoly supplier also suggest that the Europeans should be looking, let's say, to the United States to get gas instead of relying so heavily on Russia? One imagines that there are lots of alternate suppliers. I think that from the point of view of the Europeans, in fact, most of the big European countries rely heavily on Russian gas, but not in a monopolistic way. Uh, Germany is at around 40 percent. Uh, France is below that. Italy is somewhere in between. There are a handful of small European countries that rely completely on Russian gas. And for them, the the temptations and needs to diversify are much greater. But for the big customers, they're not really in the vulnerable situation that we often imagine. In fact, it probably goes in the opposite direction. The narrative that we usually hear is that Europe is very dependent on Russian gas and should therefore consider ways to diversify. And it's true, Europe is dependent on Russian gas. But if we try to characterize the mutual dependence of the two, and recognize that, in fact, Gazprom is even more dependent on the European market for its profitability than almost any other firm is dependent on a single market. And the Russian state is very dependent on Gazprom for its taxes and dividends. And we add it all up, we probably have to conclude that, in fact, it's the Russians that are more dependent on Europe than Europe is dependent on Russia. And the Europeans know that. When we look at it from the United States, we don't recognize what the Europeans actually say all the time, that it's not they who are in the vulnerable position, but the Russians who are in the vulnerable position. So there is this political fantasy of some American leaders to imagine that we can help our European friends in their relationship with Russia by sending our gas to them. We should keep in mind that the United States government does not own this gas. It is private firms that own the gas. And insofar as those private firms want to sell that gas outside the United States, which they may well want to do, they would have to get an export license. And if they had an export license, they would probably sell that gas to the highest bidder. And that highest bidder is not right now Europe. The highest bidder would likely be elsewhere in the world, almost certainly in Asia. And so unless we imagine that the U.S. government is going to tell private firms that they can't sell their gas to Japan or South Korea, but they must sell it to our friends in Europe, it's hard to see how this would work out. If we add to that the price levels, it costs money to liquefy gas. It's not the cheapest way to deliver gas. Prices in Europe have fallen by quite a lot. And so, in fact, it would probably not be profitable for the foreseeable future for any American producer of natural gas to go to the trouble of liquefying it, putting it on a ship and sending it to Europe and then not being able to recoup the costs of actually sending it there in the first place. So have gas prices fallen because the oil price has fallen? It's a very interesting and complicated question. So traditionally, natural gas that is piped has been indexed to the price of oil as a commercial practice over the past 40 or 50 years all over the world including in the Russian-European relationship. And 
that meant that when oil prices went up, piped natural gas prices went up. When oil prices went down, piped natural gas prices went down. It was actually a very elegant solution to the original problem that they had, which is that if you have a pipe going from point A to point B, you don't really have a market. You have two participants. And so there's not really a market price that you can count on. And so to avoid the difficulty of beating each other up year by year with varying bargaining power, they basically agreed from the beginning that when we have these pipes that go just from point A to point B, we need to have the price of the gas be set to some other price that prevails in some related market, oil being a plenty good one, there could be others. Over time, however, when we got to the couple of years when oil prices still were high and we had a kind of glut of natural gas in the world, the United States was producing vast amounts and demand was down elsewhere, we ended up with this very difficult situation for European customers in which they were buying piped gas from Russia at oil indexed prices that they could not pass along to their customers because the spot prices for natural gas on the hubs in Europe had fallen because there was so much extra gas around. So after a couple of years of very difficult contract renegotiations, renegotiations instigated by the European customers themselves, they pushed these relationships and the contracts away from the oil indexation toward what they call gas on gas pricing to index the price of piped gas to the prices that prevail on these small spot markets. So some of the price, uh, some of the reduction in prices had already happened through this contract renegotiation. Subsequent to that, oil prices also came down by a lot. And so even the oil indexed part of the price has come down significantly. And so now what we have really for commodities producers is this perfect storm, a perfectly unpleasant storm of declining demand in the world, including in China and in Europe, an excess supply everywhere of both natural gas and of oil, while Saudi has continued to pump for a variety of reasons that nobody really totally understands. And so the beauty of these prices is that they're quite simple, especially in oil, which is it's just about supply and demand. And it's going to be a while before we have some reckoning of the intersection of supply and demand that gives us a higher price for these products. So what you've said about the Europeans' ability to renegotiate their contracts, their long-term contracts with Gazprom, uh, ties into something you mentioned earlier, which is namely the Russian state's vulnerability and dependence on the European market. Given that this seems to be the case and that Russia's undergoing an economic contraction, it would seem that they would be more interested in improving their relationships with Europe in order to sell the gas and increase their budget revenues. And yet we don't really see that happening. How, how do you explain that? Honestly, I don't have a, a great explanation for that at the political level, in part because one of the things that happens in international relations is that national interests often trump the commercial interests of firms. And so with the situation in Ukraine, I think we can only conclude that it is more important to the Russian government to achieve its goals in Ukraine than it is to allow Gazprom to achieve its commercial goals in Europe. And we see this 
with regularity in the world, where the firms complain about this geopolitical event, uh, geopolitical situation that gets in the way of their making money. Having said that, I think that underneath a lot of the geopolitical rhetoric, the commercial relations have continued to be quite sound. And so there are ongoing efforts inside Europe, and in particular in Germany, to build a second branch of Nord Stream, the North European pipeline. Nord Stream 2, they call it. So even amidst all of this geopolitical crisis, even amidst the, the rhetoric and the rancor, the commercial relations really are proceeding apace. And we have to remember that these commercial relations are 40 and 50 years old. These firms have been doing business with one another since the Soviet times. And so they've been through a lot. They've been through the Cold War, they've been through the collapse of the Soviet Union, the chaos of the 1990s, all sorts of difficulties over 40 or 50 years. This is just one more geopolitical event for them to try to manage around. So I've been, I've been reading a little bit some of your past work on the subject, and I um, had interpreted it to mean that, in fact, the commercial firms are the ones driving the relationship with Gazprom and with Russia. Now, what you're suggesting is that there can be moments in which that changes in the national interest and the government's interpretation of those national interests actually overwhelm or overrun the commercial interests. Are you saying that this is a uniquely bad situation, that worse than the Cold War in terms of the potential conflict between Gazprom's interests and the Russian government's interests? I, not uniquely bad. I think there are always these moments where governments override the commercial considerations of their firms. Those, those moments recur. On a day-to-day, year-to-year level, I think it's mostly the commercial considerations of the firms that create many of the patterns of geopolitics that we recognize as being consequential. So this is not uniquely bad. We've seen this before. I think this is a, a major challenge, but not one that can't be overcome. And in fact, I would be very surprised if over the next year or two, we did not see a, a normalization of relations between the West and Russia, a lightening of the sanctions regime, and moving toward a recognition that both sides have interests that are mutual and both sides have interests that are incompatible, and going back to a kind of normal reckoning of these different interests, which is how geopolitics always work. And so I don't think there's anything special about this moment other than the observation that we might not all end up best friends forever. And the moment when we thought we might do that has certainly passed. But it's not, I think, really a new Cold War in the sense that we had it before, partly because Russia has no ideology to try to export. In fact, we might say that it's really only the United States that continues to have an ideology that it hopes the rest of the world will adopt. Russia's mostly interested in its national interests. And insofar as they're compatible with what the West wants, lots of deals can be done. And insofar as they're incompatible, then we'll have to go through the difficult negotiations that we're experiencing right now. Henry Kissinger was in Moscow a couple weeks ago and was met with great acclaim as being the last or the best realist, um, which is a position that the Russians maintain that they've been articulating in the international arena. From what you're saying, it sounds like you might be a realist as well. Well, I think the big difference between the kind of old school Kissinger realism is that the it was based on the idea that interests could never change in the process of interacting with somebody else. 
And so insofar as one imagines that we can deduce the interests of any nation from some set of factors in the world, that's really the, the realist perspective. And I think it's an important and valuable contribution. My own view is that our sense of our own interests and other nations' sense of their interests change over the course of interaction. And that mutual informing of interests is a part of the story that the realists generally don't take into account. Having said that, the great beauty of that kind of realpolitik in these relations is that it's a conversation that can be had that everybody understands, which is, let's sit down and talk about what my interests are, and you talk about what your interests are, and we'll figure out some accommodation between what you want and what I want, which is very different from having a conversation about, for example, good and evil in the world, which the Russians think that we try to have with them all the time. And from the Russian point of view, their sense is it would be an easier conversation to have if we were all just sitting down and being honest with each other about what we wanted and why, as opposed to couching our own interests in a language of morality or ethics or even good and evil in some sort of Manichean view of the world. The Russians see their role in the world as one that is trying to deliver order rather than chaos. And they think that the Americans are trying to deliver good rather than evil. And they're just totally different kinds of conversations to have. And so there's this wistfulness, I think, on the part of the Russians to try to get back to a conversation where we're just talking about interests and not about good versus evil. I wanted to come back to the question of Turkey, because that's obviously one that, that's very involved in the Syrian question. If that's your understanding of how countries approach each other, then how does that help us understand what's happening between Russia and Turkey at the moment? Now, this is a great question, and I think it actually goes to the heart of what's going on in Syria. We have everyone an interest in trying to deal with the threat posed by Islamic State. All of the parties involved, Russia, Turkey, the United States, the rest of Europe, believe that Islamic State represents a major threat to security. So we have agreement on that. What we don't have agreement on is a sense of priorities, nor do we have an agreement on the best way forward. So if, from the US point of view, we believe that the Assad regime is a bad regime, which, by the way, it is, and Islamic State is also deeply problematic, perhaps we can go after both of them at the same time to force a bad regime out of business as well as to try to deal with the threat of Islamic State. And that's been basically US policy. From the Russian point of view, these goals are incompatible. In fact, the Russians believe that the Assad regime is an essential ally in the fight against Islamic State. And in fact, we cannot make very much progress against Islamic State without the help of a regime that controls vast swaths of the Syrian territory and continues to have a military that is reasonably effective. And so from the Russian point of view, they believed that they needed to go into Syria to try to strengthen the Assad regime by, among other things, bombing positions of opponents of this, the Assad regime, the people who had been fighting against the Assad regime, in order to bolster it so that it could be useful in the fight against Islamic State. 
And again, from the Russian point of view about this conversation between good versus evil or order versus chaos, the Russian point of view has been, and this is a narrative that comes from Moscow, and we can debate it, but it is basically how they see it, which is this American practice of locating bad men in the world and then trying to remove them from power sometimes delivers better men and women in power, but from their point of view over the past 15 years, might just as easily deliver not better men and women in power, but way, way worse men and women in power. And that's how they view the rise of Islamic State in the first place. And so their criticism is, again, not trying to see who is bad and good in the world, but who can provide order and who might deliver us chaos. And so from the Russian point of view, the American approach to Syria has been a chaos-inducing approach rather than an order-producing approach. And they believe they need to be there in order to help deliver a more orderly solution, whether or not there are bad people in power. Which again, to go back to the realist story, is not really how the realpolitik of the old days worked. It was not about who was bad or good. It was about who served one's interests. Then when we go to Turkey, which is bordering all of this, we see a very different set of priorities. And I think for the Turkish government, the priority has been first to ensure that an independent Kurdish state that spans Turkey's borders and the borders of several other neighboring countries, including Syria, would not emerge. Then another priority for Turkey has been to try to dissuade the Russians from bombing some of their friends along the Syrian border, in particular the Turkmen population, who are in a way kind of long-lost cousins who ended up on the wrong side of the border when the Ottoman Empire fell apart. And then third, to also deal with Islamic State, which certainly represents a threat to Turkey as well. But what we have is three nations that are deeply involved in this conflict with a different theory about the way forward and a different set of priorities about which is the first and second or third objective and indeed some incompatible interests in how to proceed. So what we have had is a Russian approach that includes the bombing of positions of Turkmen who are opponents of the Assad regime but friends of the Turkish people along the Syrian border, and in doing that, flying Russian jets either very, very close to, or sometimes, depending on which of these flight paths you believe, actually over Turkish airspace, to do things that the Turkish government thinks are both bad and exactly the wrong approach to dealing with the crisis in Syria. So then, insofar as the, these Russian jets have either come very close to or have gone into Turkish airspace, the question was what the Turkish government would do about the presence of, these, of the Russian military very close to or sometimes actually over Turkish airspace. I myself was quite surprised that the reaction was uh, with a military strike to actually shoot down a Russian jet. Border incursions happen with some regularity in the world, and usually they are the cause of very stern conversations 
had over the phone, kicking ambassadors in or out of countries, they're not usually dealt with by shooting down jets. So the Turkish government evidently was really very upset about a pattern of behavior that they thought was not only undesirable, but basically could not be tolerated. One of the interesting stories, however, was how much the Russian government seemed to want to avoid a major confrontation. So on that very morning when the Russian jet was shot, was shot down, the Russian government, in fact, the Kremlin spokesman, immediately released a statement that said that it was not clear what had happened, that probably it was not an air-to-air -air missile that had shot down their jet. It was almost certainly surface-to-air missile that had come from inside Syria that shot down a Russian jet, which at the time, since I was in Istanbul, I found very reassuring that the Russian government was not rushing to blame the Turkish government. And in fact, the way I interpreted it at the time was, guys, let's calm down here. There's no need for us to get into a big fight about this. Here is a totally plausible story, which is, let's just agree that you did not shoot down this jet, that it came from a surface-to-air missile by some unknown entity from inside Syria, which I viewed as an opening to calm things down and a story that everybody could accommodate. Then the Turkish military said, no, no, actually we shot it down and we meant to and we would do it again if we had to. Which was disappointing and a little bit alarming since uh, I was hoping to come home within a couple of days and things seemed a little bit tense. So the Kremlin again said, let's not rush to judgment here. We don't know. We think it came from a surface to air missile. And then the Turkish government came on television and said, no, we definitely shot it down and we definitely meant to and we would do it again. Which then eventually led to Putin's press conference in which he said, some rather nasty things about the Turkish regime and suggested that we were on a path that was going to be very difficult to retreat from, which is things were going to be difficult for a while. And insofar as we were ending up with two governments that felt unable to back down publicly, a Turkish government that was unable to if offer some sort of apology because they meant it, and a Russian government that was unable to say that's okay to shoot down our plane, so they would have to react in some way. If we want to find a silver lining in all of this, we might say that there has been some anxiety in Europe, and especially in NATO, about how robust the NATO security guarantees are in an era when Russia seems interested in testing the resolve of the alliance, with certainly some anxiety in Central Europe and in Northeastern Europe, in the Baltic states and in Poland and otherwise. And efforts to reassure our NATO allies have led to putting new troops and new missile defense systems in Central Europe as a way to clarify to everyone that NATO continues to be for real. And that Article 5 of NATO, which says an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all NATO members, still means something in this post-post-Cold War world. If NATO did not exist, if Turkey were not a member of NATO, I think we would have seen a more aggressive military reaction from Russia. Probably some effort to shoot down at least one Turkish jet, if not several, as a kind of retaliation for this shooting down of a Russian jet. I think the fact of Turkey's being in NATO dissuaded the Russians from doing anything rash. And so I think we at least have one answer to the question that many in Central and Eastern Europe had raised about whether NATO still means something, which is that the Russians clearly believe that it does. 
And so insofar as there's a silver lining for our NATO allies in Central and Eastern Europe, it seems pretty clear that Russia does not intend to engage in a direct military confrontation with any NATO state. And NATO probably prevented this conflict from becoming much more difficult than it became. What we now have is a Russian sanctions regime. We have a very difficult diplomatic situation. We have ongoing concerns about the economic relationship and the natural gas relationship and the nuclear power relationship, but things that could be overcome without further violence. It sounds like Turkey really is the best case then to examine not only Russian-Turkish relations, but also the relationship between Russia and Europe and how this new post-post-Cold War, as you put it, environment is going to work out in the end. Well, I'm never in favor of trying to induce natural experiments of this sort, but insofar as we have an experiment that allows us to test different hypotheses about what NATO means, I think we've been delivered some answers from it, for sure. Right. Well, we'll look into some of the other questions then in our next podcast. Thank you very much, Rowie. Thank you very much. 